welcome to the Dr. Bubbs Performance Podcast, giving you the latest evidence-based research and cutting-edge insights for elite mental and physical performance. He's connecting you directly with the world's leading experts and coaches. Here's your host, Dr. Bubbs. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Dr. Bubbs Performance Podcast. This is episode number 41, and today I have the pleasure of sitting down with an incredibly insightful and thought-provoking guest. He is the author of the Wall Street Journal bestseller, Barking Up the Wrong Tree, the surprising science behind why everything you know about success is mostly wrong. Mr. Eric Barker's on the show today. Eric dives into what makes great leaders, the difference between filtered and unfiltered leaders. He also explores the other side of confidence and the pitfalls of overconfidence. He talks about how Feeling the need to slay the dragon every day to prove your self-worth is extremely self-limiting. He dispels myths like quitters never win and winners never quit, and highlights how knowing your strengths and picking the right pond is essential for your success. So just a ton of phenomenal insights here from Eric. My favorite chapter in his book is called Why Nice Guys Finish Last, What You Can Learn About Trust, Cooperation, and Kindness from Gang Members, Pirates, and Serial Killers. Really insightful stuff. Um, check out Eric's website, pick up the book, and of course you can check out my layups and performance hacks at drbubs.com forward slash podcast. And again, thanks everyone for tuning in and sharing with friends. Really appreciate the support and uh, hope you enjoy the episode. I'm joined today by Eric Barker, author of the Wall Street Journal bestseller, Barking Up the Wrong Tree, the surprising science behind why everything you know about success is mostly wrong. He's also the creator of the hugely popular blog by the same name, which presents science-based answers and expert insight on how to be awesome at life. His work has been mentioned in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Atlantic Monthly, Time Magazine, The Week, and Business Insider. He's a former Hollywood screenwriter, graduate of the University of Pennsylvania, and holds an MBA from Boston College and a Master of Fine Arts from UCLA. Eric has fenced with Olympians, grappled with MMA champions, and trained in Krav Maga with members of the elite Israeli military. He has never killed anyone that didn't have it coming, and his mother considers him a great success. Eric, thanks so much for taking the time today. Oh, it's great to be here, man. Well, listen, we met briefly at Leaders and Performance Conference in Chicago, and uh, really enjoyed your talk there. And you know, I wanted to kick things off by talking about how you open your book with a fantastic quote, which reads, nothing important comes with instructions. Can you explain? Yeah, I mean, you know, some of the biggest challenges in life don't have easy answers. And, you know, I mean, when I was writing the book, something, you know, I definitely kept in mind is that, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the books you see in terms of, uh, business and personal improvement, you know, kind of have one idea that they repeat, you know, over and over again for 250 pages. And it, it seems like that's some turnkey solution to everything. And I, I, I think we all, we all know that's just not the case, that things are usually a lot more nuanced than that. And, and the more challenging a, a problem is usually the, the harder, you know, the harder and more subtle the solution is the, 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 the penicillin that, uh, that just, you know, kills bacterial infections the the kind of one one stop you know one stop uh, shop kind of thing uh, is is exceedingly rare so you know i wanted to in the book i i i give both sides their due and try to figure out you know what is the what is the real answer that's workable and actionable as opposed to something that has the ring of truth but isn't easily implemented 
Yeah, I mean, your book provides such a great platform for you know self-reflection and answering a lot of those tough questions around the nuance of things. Um, one of them being, you know, what makes a great leader? So can you talk about the different types of leaders? Yeah, this is uh, work that was done by Gotham Makunda at Harvard Business School, where uh, he realized that basically, if you look at the research, uh, for a long time, it was very contradictory. Uh, there were Oh, there's a lot of research that showed leaders didn't really matter. That basically, if you had a team of A players, they would self-organize, uh, they would work together and coordinate, and you, you didn't really need a figurehead taking the credit. Uh, but then on the flip side, you had other studies that showed, you know, a, a charismatic leader with a vision that motivates people can can really make a huge difference difference and create big change. And it wasn't it wasn't easy to reconcile the two and. Uh, then what Gotham did was he realized that it's it is that the reason there was a problem is because there are fundamentally two types of leaders. You have filtered leaders and you have unfiltered leaders. And filtered leaders are basically when you look at a company, an enormous corporation like GE, which might have, you know, a really strong vetting process. Basically, anybody who makes it through that vetting process is going to be effectively indistinguishable from one another. Um, they're basically going to eliminate anyone who doesn't have a good degree from a good school, who would make these kind of decisions, who has this kind of experience, who has this kind So the decisions they make aren't really that special because you've steam cleaned any difference out of them. And that's when the studies showed that picking this leader or that leader doesn't make a difference. But then you have a second type of leaders, which are unfiltered leaders. So this is the entrepreneurs. This is, uh, you know, when, when the president of the United States, when something happens to him and the vice president needs to step up, well, the VP wasn't vetted the same way that he wasn't elected the same way that the president was. So you've got these 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 leaders who didn't go through a vetting process and they create enormous change because they didn't they 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 weren't uh, told you have to do this you have to do why they 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 break the rules and they create enormous change that's not always good uh, sometimes it's terrible they break the institutions they're leading but sometimes it's uh, completely transformative uh, and you get you know well you see if you look at the election of Abraham Lincoln it was a you know a perfect storm of events that allowed him to be elected and but he's 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 the United States president that ended slavery so. You fundamentally have two different types of leaders, and it's really critical for any organization to understand at any point what type of leader they need. If they're doing great, they want a filtered leader because they don't want tremendous change. And if they're doing terrible, if the if if things are really bad, you need uh, to shake things up, and you want more of an unfiltered leader. Yeah, it's really interesting stuff. And you know, when we talk confidence as well, this is something that you'd mentioned in your. In your talk, you know, in elite sport, you know, the refrain is always the same. You have to be extremely confident to succeed. You know, yet in your book, you explore sort of the other side of that double-edged sword. Can you share with listeners the story of uh, Gary Kasparov versus Deep Blue? Oh, well, uh, Kasparov versus Deep Blue was really interesting because uh, this was the chess match that took place in 1997 where Kasparov, you know, uh, one of the, the greatest chess players ever uh, and the most dominant uh, player in the sport at that point, was uh, playing Deep Blue, uh, the uh, computer created by IBM. And what was interesting was, you know, a fundamental difference between the two of them, other than one being a machine, one being a human, was that uh, Deep Blue had access to every game 
Kasparov had ever played, every move that Kasparov had ever made. Um, meanwhile, Kasparov, of course, had no idea what that machine was capable of. So he didn't didn't know it. It hadn't played, uh, you know, uh, any and lots of tournaments. There was no way to study uh, how it behaved or to know, you know, how those processors and hard drives actually what that meant in terms of chess performance. So at one point during the game, uh, Deep Blue made an utterly inexplicable move. Uh, you know, Kasparov could not figure out why it did what it did. And that got, got under Kasparov's skin. Uh, and it really caused him to start to unravel. Uh, because basically, he he knew the machine wasn't stupid. They had played before. Uh, and it had beat him in, in one game. It, it beat him in one, in one game, not the full match, but it, it beat him once. He knew it wasn't stupid. And he could not figure out why it made that move. And this led to a crisis of confidence for Kasparov, uh, where in the end, uh, he, he ended up uh, losing because he he started playing defensively. He usually had a very aggressive, assertive style, and he started dialing back because he all of a sudden didn't didn't he felt unsure. And what it all turned out to be, which is a quite ironic, fascinating, and sad, uh, is that basically it was a computer error. Uh, the, <laughs> the 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 uh, the because in chess, you know, it's all timed, uh, so you have a limited amount of time. Uh, so the programmers at, at IBM were very concerned that if there was any kind of a computer error in Deep Blue, uh, that if it crashed, it had some kind of a problem, this could completely run the clock down and, and, and cause Deep Blue to lose. So what they did was, uh, if there was any kind of computer error, uh, it, it had a failsafe that was basically make a random legal move. That way you can, you can push the clock onto Kasparov. And that's what it did. Uh, it made a random legal move and Kasparov was sitting there going, why is it doing this? And of course, Kasparov's reaction, because there's no way to read the face of a computer. <laughs> the computer yeah. yeah. So Kasparov is sitting there going, oh my God, why in the world would you do that? Does it know something I don't know? Can it think, I, I can think 20 moves ahead. Can it think 30 moves ahead, 40 moves ahead? Why would it do that? It must be smarter than I am. So uh, the issue of confidence, you know, is is certainly you know a critical one. Uh, it confidence is powerful, but but it's 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 a lot trickier than than most of us treat it. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely something that we see even in uh, elite athletics. You know, young athletes are always sort of the, the star player in, in high school and college, and maybe they don't experience their first challenge until they're in the pros. And, and when when their uh, self-esteem and everything is so tied into who they are as an, as an athlete, you can see when they do face that challenge that things can start to unravel a little bit. And another quote I love from your book is, you know, there's no such thing as pretty good alligator wrestlers. You know, what, what are some of the pitfalls of overconfidence? Um. I mean, the the you know you you get into uh, two really big problems with confidence. I mean, I mean, the, the, you know, uh, confidence is is a really tough thing to talk about because, frankly, there is no other side. No, nobody writes books about how to be less confident. You know, nobody runs around saying, "Hey, I, you know, how can I reduce my confidence?" Uh, we we treat confidence like this panacea, um, and I think that's because we we don't we. Generally, we don't make the connection between the downsides of, of confidence. We kind of treat them like they're unrelated, uh, and and they're not. You know, it's like when you get to the extremes of confidence, 
you know, the you get narcissism, you get hubris, and any I'm sure anyone who's dealt with uh, who's dealt with you know the 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 cream of the crop in terms of athletics has seen athletes who are a little too full of themselves, you know, and and who are and the problem with that is is twofold. Uh, number one, you turn into a jerk, and nobody wants to deal with you. Uh, and number two, um, it makes it difficult to learn and improve because if you think you know it all, you you don't. And that's, that becomes really, really difficult. And, and then of course, the higher your confidence goes, uh, the more, the farther you have to fall when there's problems. And we, we all know, you know, stories are legion, you know, of athletes who were undefeated and then they face their first loss and they can't handle it, you know, and they, they crack under the pressure. Um, it's, it's really difficult because, you know, there are uh, downside, there are upsides to lower confidence. Now, I'm not saying you're depressed and you can't get out of bed, but we all praise humility. We love people who are great at what they do and aren't full of themselves. And one of the fantastic things about, you know, lower levels of confidence is, you know, you learn when you're able to say, hey, I don't know everything. My coach has some information that I don't have. Um, you know, and you lose that when you go to the extremes of confidence. The, the other, the other problem that people face with, uh, with confidence, uh, kind of at the meta level is that in the end, confidence is always either delusional or contingent. And by what I mean by that is it's delusional in the sense of you think you're better than you are. And, and eventually reality is going to catch up with you. <laughs> there is much like, uh, much like uh, Wall Street, you know, there's going to be a stock market correction. If your company is overvalued, you know, at some point they're going to figure it out and it's going to tumble. Uh, you start to be able to think you can do things you can't. Uh, and that makes it very hard to actually uh, deal with reality. The second problem is that it's contingent. And we all deal with this, where the, the problem becomes that, you know, we feel like we have to wake up every morning and slay a dragon in order to feel good about ourselves, that our self-esteem is contingent on our achievement and performance. And, you know, that's fine as long as you can wake up and slay that dragon. But the truth is, we all know some days you don't feel as good. Some days you, you don't do as well. And this puts your self-esteem on a roller coaster where, you know, if you do good, you feel good. You do bad, you feel bad. And it gets hard to to get consistent results. So confidence is more complicated than, than we think to just say, be more confident, um, you know, is filled with pitfalls and, and is not the panacea that we think it is. Yeah. It's fascinating stuff. And, you know, the chapter you devote to that, there's so many great, uh, uh, examples and metaphors and, you know, for listeners, how does an athlete, a coach, doctor, anyone listening in for that matter, kind of strike that balance between, you know, overconfidence and having enough lack of confidence to, to be open to learning, et cetera? Uh, I mean, I think what it requires actually is a, is a complete paradigm shift. I think that the, looking at it through the lens of confidence, uh, I mean, it, hey, if, if an athlete has a fantastic attitude and, you know, is confident uh, on the playing field uh, but is easy to work with and open to learning, hey, then, then they might be fine. But uh, but you see a lot of cracks in the in the confidence paradigm uh, as a whole. Now you do have reports of of some top performers who who have basically taught themselves to do a a form of Orwellian uh, doublethink, where they manage to be humble, open-minded, uh, you know, and respectful uh, in training, and then they get out on the field and they flip the switch, and they are a hundred and ten percent. Uh, confident and focused and uh, and if you can do that 
great, but I, I don't know. Well, I looked at the research and it doesn't, I don't know if there's any way to, to teach that. So what it turns out is uh, what it's looking like is the answer might be instead of looking to self-confidence to look to what is called self-compassion. And this is a, uh, a concept that originally comes from Buddhism. So it's, you know, almost 1500 years old, uh, but it's been researched by uh, Kristen Neff at the University of Texas at Austin. And you know, as opposed to self-confidence, where very often people are telling themselves that they are better than they are, uh, self-compassion is looking at rea- looking at the world realistically, and then forgiving yourself. You know, when when you fail, and taking that perspective allows you to not be delusional uh, because you are seeing the world realistically. But on the other hand, you don't you don't run away from challenges. You don't get afraid. And that's some that's the problem that many people face. Many people think, oh, they hear self-compassion and compassion doesn't sound tough. That doesn't sound uh, you know, you know, uh, you know, really, really aggro. And they forget that the truth is very often when we feel like we have to achieve in order to maintain or or grow our our, our self-confidence, then you actually avoid challenges because you realize that if I fail, my self-esteem is going to crash. So you, you look for ways to avoid things that are scary. Whereas when you take the perspective of self-compassion, uh, you don't lose your edge. In fact, you're more likely to go out and try things because you're not afraid of failing. When your self-esteem is not tied to your achievements, you're able to give things a shot. And if it doesn't work out, you can shrug, you know, so it's much better. And what you see across the board is that uh, self, uh, self-confidence and narcissism are strongly correlated in psychology studies. There's almost no connection between narcissism and self-compassion. So you don't, you don't turn into a tool uh, when you increase your self-compassion. Uh, also, again, when you, when you are you know, look, seeing the world realistically and forgiving yourself – you're open-minded. You know, you're, you're, you listen to people. You see across the board, people you know, are much happier to deal with uh, people who are self-compassionate. Uh, and they're, they can, they're easy able to learn because they don't, they don't think they know everything. They're not, they're not convinced. So, and we also, like I said, uh, with athletes who haven't you know, tasted defeat, uh, self-compassion is definitely the antidote there where, you know, you can handle it. You understand that, you know, you're, you can still, you can, you can, you can lose a game and still consider yourself a good person. Uh, you know, everything about you doesn't have to fail. So, so it, it would be interesting for, uh, for more coaches to, to explore, uh, the self-compassion dynamic over self-confidence. Absolutely. I mean, so much emphasis on sort of winning and always, you know, number one or nothing. And, you know, you, you see players who can just turn the page after a bad, a bad day or a bad game and then go on like nothing's happened. And as you mentioned, you see a lot that just it just stays with them and and drags them down. And of course, that idea of it just being so tied up tied up in their self esteem is, is is really comes to light. Now, in, in pro sports as well, most people think of athletes as natural extroverts, but that's not always the case, is it? No, actually, the research shows that uh, that many that the majority of top athletes uh, identify as introverts, uh, which makes sense uh, even if you're thinking about team sports because. Uh, Skill development, you know, is almost almost uh, always a uh, a solitary a solitary act, or largely, you know, a, a solitary act. Uh, you know, there's there's so many times where you need to run those sprints, you need to uh, spend time in the batting cage, you know, you need to uh, work on your shot. All of these things uh, require some lonely effort in the trenches, uh, and you know, 
introverts have more time for that uh, because they they don't require uh, as much external stimulation as as extroverts do. So it's it's kind of funny that we uh, we we have we have a we have a society that is uh, largely uh, extrovert focused, uh, and and we we don't always realize because uh, the introverts are quieter. <laughs> we don't always uh, we don't always notice as much uh, that that uh, introverts uh, introverts are are here and they're very different. Absolutely, and you mentioned as well as sort of you know in terms of you know entrepreneurship, making connections. Um, you know, a tip for introverts being assume other people will like you, and they probably will. Can you comment on that? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a uh, it was research that basically showed being socially optimistic pays off. Um, in that, uh, you know, introverts uh, spend more time in their own head; they're more likely to overthink things. Uh, you know, uh, versus very often, you know, most most people are are uh, extroverts outnumber introverts. Um, so most people are more extroverted and most people, uh, you know, are, are nicer than, than we think. Uh, so, you know, first and foremost, when people are trying to expand their network or, or meet others, uh, is just to realize that frankly, it's not as hard as you think you're, you're probably overthinking it. If you, if you assume, if you're not being difficult, if you're not asking people for money, you know, if you're you know, people are people are people are usually uh, pretty good, and uh, and it's and it's usually uh, it's usually safe to just to just talk to them. And where's that middle ground with the? You mentioned the ambivert. Is that someone who's able to kind of flip the switch in terms of what suits the best environment? Um, I well, I, I don't know if it's it's not necessarily someone who is who is better able. It's uh, uh, most of the fundamental personality traits like introversion, extroversion, or are pretty stable, uh, over a lifetime. Um, you know, uh, obviously there, there are things you can do, you know, maybe move the needle five or 10%, but, but for the most part, most of those traits are pretty stable. And, uh, you know, most people are not extreme extroverts or extreme introverts. Most people are ambiverts, which means they're, they're just somewhere in between. They're at the, the middle of the bell curve. Um, you know, and the truth is that uh, you know you you still get a superpower if you're an ambivert. Uh, you know, the the uh, we we would we might believe that the best salespeople would be extroverts, but that's actually not the case. The best salespeople are actually ambiverts uh, because uh, introverts aren't uh, as social usually social enough. They're good listeners, but they're usually not social enough to be great salespeople. Uh, but meanwhile, extroverts can actually talk too much. Uh, and be a little too socially dominant uh, to uh, to close the sale. So actually, it's ambiverts who do the who do the best uh, in terms of sales because they have the right balance uh, between the two. So for all three, you know, it's it's just a matter of knowing where your strengths lie. There's it's not that you know uh, introverts, extroverts, or or ambiverts. You know, there's something they can do that somebody else can't. You know, uh, everybody can talk to people, and everybody likes to spend a certain amount of time alone. Uh, it's just kind of where where do your your proclivities lie in general? Yeah, it sounds like knowing yourself and picking the right environment is a huge part of the uh, achieving that success, right? Well, that's basically the the the, the high level formula I set up for success is just the idea of first knowing yourself. Uh, knowing your strengths, your weaknesses, and then finding uh, an environment, picking the right pond, finding uh, an environment that uh, appreciates those and rewards those. Because uh, most people don't sit down and actually think through uh, those two elements. I mean, it's it makes intuitive sense, but most people don't actually uh, do that. They don't objectively uh, evaluate 
their strengths and weaknesses. Uh, and most people kind of stumble into the, the career they're in or the company they work for, uh, the environment they create, as opposed to uh, really thinking if this is the, the best arena that exploits my strengths and, uh, and downplays my weaknesses. And there's a lot of common maxims that sort of uh, you know, perpetuate certain things, like the ideas that you know, quitters never win, winners never quit. You know, what's the connection there between um, you know, optimism, pessimism, storytelling, and as you mentioned, kind of really finding that right pond? Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the whole idea of you know, uh, quitters never win, winners never quit, you know, it's, I mean, you know, on the surface, you know, it's just downright wrong. I mean, we, we, we all quit things. We have, <laughs> sure. we, we only have, to, we only have 24 hours in a day. You know, there, there are certainly things you did when you were 10 years old that you don't do now, you know, so we, we all have to have to quit things, uh, because, you know, time is finite. Uh, it's just, you know, the issue is, uh, is in terms of being persistent on the things that matter. Uh, how do you do that? Because very often we we prioritize the the things that are not important, uh, and they get more uh, they get more time or 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 more quality uh, attention than than they should. And one of the critical things in terms of producing that grit, that persistence uh, for long term goals, uh, if you look at the research um, most of it done by uh, Martin Seligman and Angela Duckworth at the University of Pennsylvania, uh, is that optimism you know, is, is really, really powerful in terms of grit. Uh, and, and it makes, again, it makes intuitive sense. The idea that if you think something you're doing is going to fail, well, it, frankly, it doesn't make sense to be persistent. <laughs> and, uh, For and sure. if you, and if, and if, and if you went into the casino and you were 110% certain that you were going to win, um, well then, yeah, stay there. Keep spend as much money as you can. You know, it's like it, it makes perfect sense. You're, you know, absolutely spend as much money because if you think things are going to work out, double down. Uh, so so that attitude of optimism, uh, you know, uh, has been shown in studies and to break it down, because I think it's I think it's very it's very easy to say be optimistic. And then people say how um, is that uh, what Seligman found is that there were uh, the, the three P's, which is whether you perceive things as uh uh, per, uh, personal, uh, permanent, and pervasive. And that is, if you see good things in your life as personal, in other words, I am I'm, I made that good thing happen. If you see it as uh, persistent, so in other words, this good thing is going to keep happening. And pervasive, this, this like good personality trait I have is going to positively affect every area of my life. When people see good things as permanent, uh, persistent, and pervasive, uh, they feel optimistic. And when you see the negatives as personal, in other words, you know, uh, this is my fault, persistent, uh, this, this negative thing is just going to stick around, you know, forever and pervasive, you know, I'm, uh, I'm not good with people. So every interaction is going to be, is going to be bad. Uh, that's when people, uh, go that, that pessimistic attitude, uh, produces, uh, produces pessimism, which causes us to quit. So, Basically, what it comes down to is listening to that voice in your head. We all say about like three thousand to—I'm sorry, three hundred to a thousand words to ourselves in our heads about per minute. And you got to listen to that voice. And rather than just unquestioningly accepting what you hear that voice in your head saying to yourself, you need to challenge it. And when you hear negative things that are that are personal, persistent, pervasive, um, you need to question them. You know, it, you know, is this really all my fault? Is this really going to go on forever? Is this really going to affect every area of my life? No, it's not. You know, and when you hear the good, 
great. It's like, you know, follow up with that, continue with that. And by working on the three P's, you can, you can make yourself more optimistic and that will allow you to be more gritty and resilient, uh, in, in terms of, uh, pursuing your long-term goals. That's great advice. And then, you know, sounds like cutting out those things that aren't really moving the needle towards your goal is definitely those things that we need to, you know, all of us sort of hold on to that. It's just, you know, time to quit or or to carve those out of the, uh, the calendar for sure. Yep. Okay. Well, I'm from Toronto and you've got a great piece in your book about grit. Speaking of grit, uh, (laughs) and when it's time to quit and highlights the Toronto raccoon, which I spent, um, a lot of time trying to get out of my trash can. So can you share the story (laughs) with folks and the challenges? Uh, yeah, the, uh, basically, uh, you might be more familiar than you might be more qualified to explain this than I am, but, uh, the, uh, the raccoon, the raccoons of Toronto are incredibly persistent and they, uh, they are amazing at getting into people's trash cans and, uh, the city has, uh, spent an enormous uh, millions of dollars, uh, trying to develop raccoon proof trash cans and, and have, uh, have, have failed miserably, uh, at least as I can least attest as far to that. I, I can attest okay. to that. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, you know, it's like, obviously, uh, food is important to raccoons, uh, you know, but it's like they, they kind of seem to have fun with it. It's a challenge to them. And that's one of the things I read about in the book is the idea that, uh, you know, when we make things a game, uh, we, we we become more persistent. You know, when we see that, and I, I mean, you, you look at it, it's like, you know, if, if you know, uh, you know, doing your taxes is, is this arduous, annoying task that you procrastinate. Uh, but, you know, some some game on your iPhone can just keep you captivated for how long? I mean, and the truth is, when you break them down, you know, what's the difference? You know, they're, you're, you're answering questions or you're you're checking boxes or, you know, it, it's really not that diff- the difference is a handful of game mechanics uh, that, that make things, you know, different, uh, you know, a game that feels winnable, uh, that has novel challenges, that has goals, that provides immediate feedback. These are the kind of things that turn annoying, uh, chores, uh, into fun games. And, you know, I, 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 I don't have any proof on this, but I, but I think that, uh, we, we might find that those Toronto raccoons, uh, merely find the, uh, the, the newly developed, uh, quote unquote, raccoon proof trash cans to just be novel challenges. You know, that's like getting, that's like getting to the second or third level of the video game for them. Um, so, uh, so, so we, we might be able to, to learn a lot from, uh, from, from those little guys. Yeah, it's it's amazing in reading that that excerpt about you know how they've just you know breeding smarter raccoons based on being able to overcome those challenges is really uh, really exceptional. Um, now shifting gears here, this idea of you know happiness versus success is is finding a work life balance a real thing? Uh, is it tangible or is it just sort of fool's gold? Uh, the work life balance issue is interesting because it basically didn't exist, you know, uh, a few decades ago. Uh, and they they actually track this uh, because they you can you they can do searches for how how many times has a word been used uh, in in the newspapers in major media and uh, you know and I believe more than I think it was thirty forty years ago the the word basically didn't exist and now obviously it's it's bandied about constantly and that's because of a number of you know a number of developments we've seen where you know forty years ago uh, the you know, at the, the office closed at 5 p.m. and you went home and you saw your family, you saw your friends, and that's what you did. And now with technology, 
you know, you're, you're, you got your, you're connected all the time. You know, the, the, your email is in your pocket wherever you go. Uh, the, the world is global. So things are running 24 seven. So there's always this debate. You could always be working. And the problem is when you look at the research, uh, ceteris paribus, the more, the, the more work you do, uh, the better the results you'll get. So there is an incentive to work more, to work harder. Uh, and when you combine this, uh, you, you get this kind of uh, disastrous perfect storm where work, if you work more, you get better results and you are now able to work 24-7. So that just keeps the, the hamster running on the treadmill uh, as opposed to in the past, you know, oh, well, hey, if it's 7 p.m., I can't get that document for you. It's at the office. Well, now the document's in the cloud. You can get it at 2 o'clock in the morning if you need to. So we are always stressed with this idea of should we work because work is always an option. Uh, and the, the critical thing there is in the end, uh, you know, the default has switched. It used to be that the world decided for you. Hey, you stop at 5 p.m., the doors to the office closed, go home. Now the, the onus is on each and every one of us to draw a line. And that's difficult to do because we know that there's rewards, promotions, raises, there's things out there, uh, there's pressures. Uh, but at some point you, you need to draw a line and that needs to be a personal line in terms of you know, what is good enough for me because the way, the way things are set up now, um, you know, the world is just, the answer is always gonna be more. How, how much do I need to work? More. <laughs> How much do I need to work out? <laughs> the answer is always going to be more. So if you don't draw that line for yourself, then you're just going to be the hamster running on the on the treadmill. You you need to you need to set a, a idea of th this is what's good enough for me now. And you can experiment with that, tweak it, but everybody needs to decide that for themselves, or they're going to find themselves, uh, you know, working too hard or not working enough, uh, and and. And that can lead to some serious unhappiness or, or burnout. 100%. I mean, definitely something that you see more now in the medical field is things like burnout and people just, again, unable to draw that line between, uh, you know, work and home life. And, and really, as you mentioned, kind of, you know, what is success, really defining it for themselves. And something that we obviously see a lot in the research now is, is, is this idea of gratitude and gratitude being so important for not only um, personal health, but even success. Can you touch on gratitude? Uh, the importance of gratitude and how it impacts us? Yeah, I mean, gratitude is one of the, the things that has been most studied uh, in terms of producing happiness. And, and the studies have been replicated uh, again and again. Um, you know, uh, Martin Seligman, uh, one of the most simple, straightforward, easy happiness exercises that somebody can do uh, is simply before you go to bed at night, uh, put a pad and pen uh, next to the, uh, you know, on your, on your bed stand. And, um, and just write down three good things that happened to you that day. And this simple exercise has been shown uh, after a few weeks or a couple months, uh, you know, people, people feel better. And that is because, you know, we, we, we think that, oh, geez, there's only a handful of, of things. That, no, there are tons of things going on in the world, you know, limitless things going on in the world. There are tons of things going on in your life. It's, it's really an issue of attention, you know, where you, you only remember a sliver of what happens to you that day. And those, those things that are top of mind, those things that are most memorable uh, in the day, you know, contribute a great deal to your mood and how you feel about your life. 
So just taking the time to remember, you know, the good things that happened, uh, you know, goes a long way. Keeping those things top of mind uh, as opposed to, you know, the bad things. Uh, you're not you're not changed. You know, that this isn't necessarily changing what happened, but it's just changing. Where is your attention? Uh, and if your attention is on those good things, you know, you're going to you're going to feel better. But the, the other phenomenal thing about gratitude uh, is that it's one of the few uh, happiness, uh, happiness inducers that affects two people. Uh, you know, is that, uh, you know, when you when you express gratitude to someone, uh, they feel good and you feel good. And one of the most powerful uh, happiness exercises, again, uh, uh, research by Martin Seligman, uh, it was what's called the gratitude visit, where you you write a letter telling somebody how much they mean to you and how all the great things they've done for you. Uh, this can be a friend, a relationship partner, a mentor. Um, and then you make an appointment with them. Don't tell them what you're going to do. Sit them down and read them the letter. And, you know, <laughs> bring tissues because yeah, people end up exactly. crying. But, uh, but this is something that has been shown to make statistical, uh, statistically significant increases in happiness for months uh, after it happens. Because we all think about the people who have done good things for us. And occasionally we, we, we say thank you. Uh, but rarely, I mean, you could, you know, it's, I think we can all agree on this. Rarely does anyone take the time to really spell out, sit you down and make a moment out of it. Uh, and again, that's something that can increase happiness levels for, for months. Gratitude is incredibly powerful and we, we, we generally don't do it enough. Yeah, that's uh, really, really great insights there. And, and so many great insights here today, Eric, your book was a you know, fantastic resource and platform. I've, you know, I've marked it up so much. It looks like my four-year-old's coloring book, but uh, <laughs> I, I want to respect your time here. So, so last question for you here on the personal side of things, you know, how do you start your day? Are you a coffee guy? Do you have a routine? What does that look like? <laughs> I, uh, I, I start my day. I would love to be able to, to wake up and meditate, but uh, meditation usually has to happen later in the day because I'm usually, uh, so tired that if I meditated, I would just fall asleep again. Uh, so basically I, I start my day by, you know, uh, I have a little morning ritual where, uh, I try and stay away from the computer, uh, or email or anything like that because I don't, I don't want, I don't want, uh, any, I don't want the email or whatever becoming my priorities. Uh, you know, I just look over, um, you know, what are my goals for the day? You know, what, what do I need to get done? Uh, and, and if there's anything particular, uh, lately that I've, that I've been dealing with, I, I will update it with a few reminders, but it's really an issue of just focusing myself on remembering what's important because I, I, and I think we all to some degree, uh, have a tendency to be reactive where something gets thrown at us, we respond to it. I think that's kind of wired into us. And if you don't wake up and take a second to say what's important to me and then sculpting your day around that, then you're merely going to be uh, kind of a cog in the machine. You're going to be, you're going to be reacting to, to things rather than determining what happens or at the very least thoughtfully responding as opposed to just knee jerk reacting. So the critical thing for me is to, to wake up, you know, uh, figure out, get my head straight, uh, think about my goals for the day and 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 not be reactive. 
Terrific. And does any beverages help with that process? Are you? Uh... <laughs> I, no, I, I definitely, I definitely get, I definitely get my coffee. Uh, there's no, there's no doubt about, there's no doubt about that. Uh, anything that gets me up and get me going is a good thing. Awesome. Awesome. Well, listen, massive. Thank you for taking the time out today. Where can people keep up with your amazing work and uh, stay connected with you on social media? Yeah, um, uh, my book is Barking Up the Wrong Tree. Uh, it's available on Amazon and uh, other booksellers. Uh, my blog uh, has a very weird URL, so uh, it's better to just Google Barking Up the Wrong Tree blog or Google my name, Eric Barker. And the best way to keep up with what I'm doing is to uh, sign up for my uh, weekly newsletter. Uh, it's one email a week, and it just uh, has the latest uh, the latest uh, stuff I'm looking at in terms of the research on you know how to improve areas of your life from productivity to happiness to relationships to negotiation. Fantastic. Well, I'll definitely include all those links in a brief podcast summary in the show notes at drbubs.com forward slash podcast. Thanks again, Eric. And thanks again for everyone else tuning in. If you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at drbubs. You can use the hashtag drbubspp. If you enjoy the show, head over to iTunes, subscribe, and please give us your rating of the show. Really appreciate all the support and feedback. Thanks again, everyone, and see you guys next week. The Dr. Bub's Performance Podcast endeavors to provide accurate and helpful information to listeners. These podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Dr. Bub's Performance Podcasts.